And now for something completely different. Ah! Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. Egg boy. I dropped my pen. <laughs> hey, good morning. Welcome to the show. Of course, it is uh, <laughs> Wednesday. It's the hump day edition of the Real Investment Show. Uh, Brent Clanton dressed up very nice today. So you're just trying to just dress to impress today. Is that the goal? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that'll work. <laughs> that and my jeans were dirty. There, uh, there you go. <laughs> so uh, today, of course, Danny Ratliff joining me as well. And we'll talk about a few things. Um, you know, one thing is interesting going on. Uh, yesterday, I did a uh, review video with Adam Taggart. And one of the questions that keeps coming up is about gold, right? So everybody wants to know, you know, should you know, I got to buy gold. The end of the world is coming. Got to own gold. Okay, few things about gold that you need to understand. Uh, first of all, gold has now had the worst streak of losses since 1869, right? So I mean, you've got to go back a long way to find a period in time where gold has performed this poorly over a period of time. Now, this, this of course, completely flies in the face of everything that investors have been told about gold for the last few years, which is inflation's coming, you've got to own gold as an inflation hedge, et cetera. And, and that's, you know, that's kind of a longstanding case. However, if you go back in time, um, really gold has not performed as a good inflation hedge period ever. Um, you know, there are moments in time where gold performs exceptionally well. In fact, if we just go back to, to really, um, uh, you know, uh, kind of 2021 in general, gold was performing fairly well. So again, there, and, and we didn't have a lot of inflation back in 2021, right? That's just where we were just starting to kind of get the initial bouts of inflation. So gold was performing well. What gold what drives gold is real interest rates and that's the thing you really want to keep a watch on so if you if you're if you're a gold investor want to own gold that's great watch for a reversal in real rates now what is real rates real rates are inflation subtracted out of your interest rate so when interest rates and if, when inflation comes down and interest rates start to fall real rates will reverse that's when gold will perform better and, and so that's when you want to start owning gold Gold is not a replacement for a currency. We don't trade that anywhere in the world. Um, you can't go to Starbucks and trade in your gold coin. Well, you probably could if somebody was smart enough at Starbucks to figure that out, but you, you can't convert gold into an actual barterable you know, asset right now, right? But that's just not the way we work. The entire world is a fiat currency. So if you want to do anything or transact any business with gold, you've got to convert it back into dollars. Now, if you happen to be a foreign investor, gold's actually doing very well for you because why? Gold trades in dollars everywhere in the world. So because of the strength of the US dollar, gold is performing well if you happen to live and operate in a foreign currency. Unfortunately for US investors, we don't get that luxury because we buy and sell everything in dollars. So the strong dollar is also weighing on gold as well. So again, the point here is, is, is look, if you want to own gold and, and, and those type of things, that's, that's completely up to you. But as an investment, you know, this is one of the things that, that you know, we often talk about on the show is that when we're investing capital, we need to invest capital in areas that you know, are working. And you know, right now, this has just been an area that just hasn't worked well. 
And, and again, that doesn't mean that it'll never work well again, and it doesn't mean you should never own gold. There will definitely be a period in time you want to own gold. But, you know, again, one of the questions was, was yesterday, you know, it's like, I'm just buying, you know, I'm just putting everything into gold right now because the world's coming to an end and, and inflation's high and all these type of things. Oh, that's great. It's just not working. Um, and the point here is, is this, is that, you know, betting on, and this is one of the points I made yesterday, which is we can all worry about the end of the world and being in a bunker and those type of things, but that's not really a great way to live, right? Being, being uber pessimistic all the time, it's not really a fun way to live your life. You know, having some optimism, some hope that things are going to get better typically works out better, especially in the investing forum over time, because again, things do get, do get better, right? Right now we're going through an earnings slowdown. We're going through a potential recession next year. Got a lot, man, a lot of concerns, right? So you can kind of certainly understand the allure of gold in an environment where, you know, things look so bad. But typically what happens historically is that things never work out as badly as we think. You know, um, you know, something happens in life and we say, oh, this is the worst thing ever. This is just going to be a terrible thing. It's nothing's ever going to be the same again. Um, but things get better, right? Things are never quite as bad as we think they are. Things do get better. Things do turn around. You know, Warren Buffett once said, you know, never bet against the, against the American. And, and that's right. Never, never, you know, the, the idea that things are terrible and are never going to never going to return to normal you know that's that's typically a bet that doesn't work out so again as we start you know thinking about moving into next year and this is going to be one of the things that we talk about on november the 15th we have our lunch and learn coming up on november 15th our end of the year kind of review of the markets but one thing we'll be talking about moving into next year is the recession that we're going to potentially have but see everybody knows the recession is coming right? That's already getting priced into the financial markets, into earnings, into expectations, all that's getting priced in. So if the, if the recession that comes isn't as bad as expected, or even if it is bad as expected, a lot of that's already getting priced into stock prices, into earnings expectations, into growth rates. Now we haven't done enough yet, right? That's got to, we're going to have more of that to go. So don't think that we're already at the bottom because we're not. But the point is, is that as we go through this cycle, you have to remember that markets are already pricing in a lot of these things. And so by the time, that, this is why when you look back in history, the market always tends to lead, you know, the market tends to bottom before you get to the recessionary bottom or whatever it is, because the market's already anticipating the recovery. So again, as an investor, what's our job? Our investor, our, our job as an investor is to invest capital, where, where we have an opportunity to make money. And we also want to invest capital in the areas that we expect to make the most money, right? So again, as we start thinking about where the economy is, where we are now, um, you know, as we go into the fourth quarter, look, it's gonna be a fairly weak fourth quarter, economically speaking, first and second quarter next year, probably weaker as we go through this because all these rate hikes that the Fed's doing now, that's going to show up next year. So we're going to have slower economic growth. So we need to be cautious about our investing for the time being. But again, don't, don't mistake where the future growth is going to be. Again, you know, being in the bunker is one thing. And, and again, having a lot of beanie weenies and ammo and those type of things, awesome. Nothing wrong with that. But when it comes to managing money, just remember that things do, don't always work out as anticipated. And that doesn't mean that it won't ever work out that way. 
but it does mean that we need to pay attention to where kind of things are going. So that's just kind of a, a quick rundown of where we are. Now, uh, this afternoon is the FOMC meeting. We'll talk about that after the break a little bit with Danny Ratliff. Of course, the expectation is, is for a 75 basis point rate hike. Once that occurs, that's pretty much baked into the markets as well. Markets kind of trading a little bit sloppy yesterday and this morning, um, kind of ahead of that Fed meeting. What's important is what the Fed's going to say at their press conference this afternoon. And we'll talk about that right after the break here uh, with Danny Ratliff and talk about potentially how the market reacts to this. And an article I'm writing for Friday is why the faint stocks aren't necessarily dead. So this is all going to kind of play in together and we'll talk about this. Uh, right after the break. Be sure you're by the website though, get registered for the upcoming event. It's November the 15th at what, noon? Yeah. At noon. Um, it's via Zoom. It's, it's, so we'll, we'll be on Zoom, me, Danny, Richard, and we're talking about the year-end economic review. So make sure you're signed up there. It's absolutely free. Uh, we'll spend about an hour just kind of talking about markets, money, what the outlook is, what happens post midterm elections, because that's next week as well. We'll talk about all that. After the break, right here with Danny Ratliff, don't go away. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. The end of the year is fast approaching. What will the new year bring? Join Richard Rosso, Danny Ratliff, and Lance Roberts for our year-end economic review special event Tuesday, November 15th. How to address higher taxes in the new year? Should you delay your retirement in 2023? What will the midterm elections mean for markets? Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com for our year-end economic review special event with Ratliff, Rosso, and Roberts. Realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. And welcome back to the show this morning. It is, of course, uh, Wednesday, hump day. That means that Danny Ratliff's in the house. Danny, what's up, man? Hello, hello. How are you? Good. So a uh, few things. <laughs> Brent pulled my, I, I did a tweet yesterday on where Americans get the majority of their news, yep. which is off of social media. <laughs> Brent pulled that graphic this morning, <laughs> put it on my note page. It's pretty funny. I mean, you know, the the 31% of Americans get their misinformation on Facebook. Uh, sorry, information, I should say. Freudian slip. Yeah. Information on uh, Facebook. YouTube's number two, Twitter, number three, followed by Instagram, TikTok, Reddit, Snapchat, and LinkedIn. But of course... It's kind of scary. Yeah. But, but, you know, everything on the internet is true, as they say. Um, <laughs> I don't even know what to in, believe half Garbage the time. out. <laughs> <laughs> and you wonder why. Yeah. And that was, my, that was my tweet yesterday, which is, and you wonder why, dot, dot, dot. Um, anyway. So a couple of things I just wrapped up with in the last segment. Uh, this afternoon is the FOMC meeting. Uh, Jerome Powell and crew will be hiking interest rates by 75 basis points. That's what is widely expected. I don't expect any deviation from that. The what everybody is anticipating. So this so where do things go haywire this afternoon, one way or the other? Um, this afternoon, what is what is expected? 
is that they'll hike 75 basis points and start talking about slowing the pace of rate hikes um, and setting up the basis for a 50 basis point hike in December. That's what's expected. If the Fed comes out and says, uh, you know, we're nowhere near slowing down the pace of rate hikes and we've got to be more aggressive, you know, whatever it is, if they allude to a more hawkish side of the ledger, stocks can get hit pretty hard today. If they come out and kind of come in line with expectations, markets will probably be a little flat to up. Uh, you know, kind of this idea that they're going to start slowing rate hikes is the kind of the quote unquote pivot. But a lot of that's already kind of priced into stocks here over the last couple of weeks. Uh, markets have had a nice rebound here. So a lot of that kind of if, if they stay kind of party line right now, uh, wouldn't expect markets to a whole lot. If they come out and say something like, you know, we're you know reevaluating our inflation concerns, something more dovish, then stocks could be up sharply this afternoon. So, so again, that's kind of your outcomes. Don't really expect them to, to deviate too much from what's already kind of been laid out there. I mean, it's, it's despite the fact that speakers have been in blackout for the last couple of weeks going into this meeting today, it's been pretty widely discussed throughout Wall Street and economist reports and media and everything else, kind of what the expectations are, which again is the 75 basis point rate hike and then an allusion to slowing down the pace of those rate hikes in December, and then the first two meetings of next year, which are 25 basis points apiece, the terminal rate being 5%. So if the Fed gets, if the Fed kind of lays that out, that's kind of what's already widely expected. Stocks may not do a whole lot this afternoon. So we'll see, we'll just see how things kind of, kind of work out. Danny? Now, what do you expect that to do to the yield curve? If, you know, obviously, if they back off, they can become a little bit more dovish. Most of this has to be priced in, right? You would think so, but the yield curve is already pretty much, you know, laid out. And, and again, you know, what's interesting is, is despite the fact that, you know, the Fed's been hiking rates, yields really haven't gone much of anywhere. No, they've actually come down a little bit yeah. from their highs. Yeah. And so, you know, even though the Fed terminal rate is 5%, the 10-year Treasury rate is still hovering right around 4%. So what the 10-year Treasury rate and the yield curve is already telling you is that, A, a recession's coming. Right. So that's one thing we already know. And you've got a, a, a large you've got more than 60 percent of the yield. The, we, we track 10 different yield spreads between treasuries, you know, 10 month versus 10 year versus three month and 10 year versus five years and, you know, et cetera, so forth and 10 year and two year and all that. So we track the most economically sensitive ones and we have 10 of those that we track and 60 percent of those are now inverted. Just now, historically, when you get above 50 percent inversion, right, so when you have 50 percent of those 10 yield curves inverted, you have always, without exception, had a recession, you know, within the coming year. So, again, you know, at 60 percent, the odds are, you know, flat on that we're going to have a recession. I think that the Fed understands that risk. And they also understand that when you have a recession, inflation comes down. And you've also got to you've also got to imagine that they already understand too as well. You're already seeing housing prices come down. You're already seeing a, a big slowdown. That that hasn't fed into inflation yet. Auto prices are coming down. That hasn't fed into inflation yet. So you have to think that the Fed are, is already aware that we've probably seen peak inflation. So for them to pull their foot off the gas here a little bit would 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 make a lot of sense. Yeah, that does so. make sense. So you know you mentioned gold earlier. Everybody's been been talking about gold. I mean, right. we get calls on that daily. Um, Obviously hasn't worked, but if they do make this shift, if we see them, if they're successful, actually, you know, bringing the dollar mm -hmm. down a tad bit, does that when gold starts to work? Yeah, 
because because a um, you know again you know what makes gold work is is real interest rates or yeah. I should say what makes gold work or not work is real interest rates. So as I said, you take the interest rate, subtract out inflation. That's real real rates. So when you start to see real rates reverse, that's when gold's going to start performing better because that's where you're heading into a recession. That's where you get disinflation, and that's where gold's going to typically an environment where gold's going to start to perform better. So, you know, there's 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 a real possibility here that over the next year, gold will will start to perform better. And, and again, it's like bonds, right? Bonds have had the worst drawdown this year since 1789. You've had the worst drawdown in gold since 1869 in terms of months of negative performance, right? So, you know, whenever you have, you know, those type of environments, and again, this is what I was talking about earlier is, you know, kind of betting on the end of the world stuff never really works out that well because things tend to change. But you're starting to get drawdowns in your 60-40 allocations that you haven't seen since the late 1700s. You know, those things don't last very long. And historically, when you go back and look at history, when you have these big drawdowns or big bear markets in these asset classes, they tend to perform a lot better. You know, back in 2020, we were talking about nobody wanted to own energy. Now you can't get people to sell energy stocks right? <laughs> because they're performing so well that's going to end as well. So you're going to see a rotation out of energy stocks, and you're going to see it go into beating up technology stocks. You're going to see money go back into bonds and go back into gold because those asset classes will start to perform better as you start to see disinflation in the economy and those type of things. So again, you just have to to look ahead and say, okay, this is what's happened, but what's coming next? What our inclination is as investors is, is that we tend to think that whatever's happening is now the new permanent trend and that's never going to reverse. Well, we look backwards, right? It's like right. the old school Morningstar yeah. reports where everybody looks and says, oh, this has been so good. Um, it was great last year. Just like the Ibbotson charts, you know, the quilt. Yeah. We look in each year, you know, the top's usually going to be towards the bottom. And that's not every year, but uh, usually that trend dies and the bottom goes towards the top. And, yep. You know, it's just picking the right ones. Yeah, no, exactly. And but again, it's always to think about where again, this old Wayne Gretzky, you know, saying, you know, let's skate where the puck's going to be. Yeah, not where and, it is. Yeah. And that's but the problem is as investors what we tend to do is we tend to focus on where the puck is. Well, we usually skate to where it was <laughs> is the problem. <laughs> or skate to where it was. Yeah. That's actually probably a better analogy. But that's what we do as investors. So but that's the hard part, right? Yeah. The hard part is buying stuff that nobody wants, right? Because it's not working. Um, you know, buying and I'm writing an article for Friday talking about no fang stocks aren't dead. And and the reason I'm writing that article is because everybody's starting to write articles that fang stocks are dead, you gotta go buy other companies. You know, I wouldn't I wouldn't recommend putting all your portfolio into fang stocks, and I wouldn't recommend putting all of them into all the fang stocks, right? There are some that are gonna perform better than others. But when you start seeing articles and headlines saying that something is dead it's generally the time you want to start taking a look at those assets classes. And, and I laid out three reasons, you know, in this article for why that's the case, which is stock buybacks, these, these mega cap companies, Boeing, GE, Apple, Microsoft, et cetera, they have the capital to buy back shares. So share buybacks is one. Passive investing is a big one. 31 cents of every dollar goes into the top 10 stocks of the index. And then lastly, is just that those have the potential in a disinflationary environment to have the largest rates of earnings growth, so and most stable, and that's what our, uh, investors are going to look for when we get into a recession next year. So yeah, again, you'll start dropping again. Exactly. So, got to think about where the puck's going to be uh, next year. So anyway, yeah, a lot of moving parts right now. <laughs> it's fun. it's been a, it's been an interesting year.
Glad it's almost over. So yeah, November the fifteenth, as I said, uh, we're we're gonna we're gonna discuss this a whole lot more on November the fifteenth. So go by the website and uh, get registered for that uh, that webinar. Uh, seats are filling up fast. There's no limit, but they are filling up. So. <laughs> because <laughs> it's all online uh, but uh so the SME november 15th and at 12 noon uh bring your own lunch and we'll go through the economy we'll go through markets we'll talk about next year what it all kind of looks like and of course this will be post midterm election so once we get through kind of the midterm elections we'll also kind of know where we are in terms of you know who's going to control house and senate um we know who controls the white house that'll that'll stay the same but gridlock, what does that mean for the economy and, and how do markets typically perform post midterms? And, you know, what are the outcomes looking like that as we move into next year? Yeah, it will be answering your questions. So go to realinvestmentadvice.com, go to ask a question. Uh, we'd love to, to get as much of those answered as we can. So um, go ahead and get those down because we are going to have a limited amount of time. Uh, fortunately, fortunately or unfortunately, we could probably spend several yeah. hours doing it. Yeah. Uh, but I know a lot of you guys have very similar questions. We'd love to get to those as well. Yeah. And, and so we'll, we'll try to lump all those together and get them yeah. answered. So, um, like, but as I said, so this afternoon, kind of the big thing will be the FOMC meeting. Um, that'll be out at two o'clock this afternoon. Again, the, the announcement is not really what's going to move markets, right? Uh, what's going to really move markets is the presser that Jerome Powell gives immediately afterwards. So that's when he gets in front of all the reporters and he starts answering questions. And that's where things either tend to go haywire or tend to do really well, depending on what he says. Because, again, it won't be what he says. It's going to be how the markets parse out <laughs> what he says. You know, he can say, we're not we're not hike. You know, we're 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 going to keep hiking rates and the market's going to hear that is, oh, that means you're going to pause and then stocks can take off running. So it's it, but if don't, he, but if you pivoted today, that wouldn't necessarily be a great thing either. No, that, no, it's it's you don't know. This is the whole problem. Yeah. Right. Anyway, true. Be right back after the break. investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com the end of the year is fast approaching what will the new year bring join richard rosso danny ratliff and lance roberts for our year-end economic review special event tuesday november 15th how to address higher taxes in the new year should you delay your retirement in 2023 what will the midterm elections mean for markets register now at realinvestmentadvice.com for our year-end economic review special event with Ratliff, Rosso, and Roberts. Realinvestmentadvice.com. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. So yesterday we talked a little bit about Facebook, Meta, and the idea of capital gains, unrealized capital gains taxes. And, you know, this is, you know, one of the fallacies that, you know, we go through from a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of times, particularly in Washington, D.C., is they're coming up with ways to tax the rich, right? And we went through the whole analysis yesterday about, 
how is it that these, you know, CEOs that have these, you know, multi-billion dollars of net worth, how they use their, they can't sell their stock because if they start selling their stock, that depresses the stock value because everybody says, oh my gosh, why are they selling their stock, right? So it's all about insider sales. And so what they do is they take their stock, go to the bank and they borrow money against it. They get a tax-free, you know, basically a tax-free sell of their stock by borrowing against their stock. So that's how they have their private planes and houses and all these type of things. And they still have, still have all this stock. So, you know, when they talk about, you know, Elon Musk, you know, net worth, and they talk about his, his, you know, stock value, like he's worth 200 billion. Well, the problem is, is 200 billion less, you know, how much did he borrow against that stock, right? That's what you don't know. But, you know, the whole problem with this unrealized capital gains tax that Washington was touting, you know, throwing around here earlier was, you know, the, you own a stock that's up, you know, 100%, but you haven't sold it. And right. And this was this was the argument was like all these rich people have all these stocks and they don't they don't ever sell them. So they never pay taxes. So we have to pay. They need to pay a capital gains tax on that every year. Well, what Facebook and, and Meta stock showed us is the other side of that story is that Meta's lost 73% of its value. So now Mark Zuckerberg has a huge write-off as a capital loss this year, unrealized capital loss, in the value of his stock to write off against the other income he has coming in. So now everybody's all upset now because these big billionaires are getting these massive write-offs because... Their stock value went down, so you know it's it's always great to try to tax. You know, we, we're only we're only going to tax you if you have a gain, but you don't get the write off if you have a loss, right? And you can't do that. You you've you've, you've got to have both sides of the ledger, and that's why these things are always ridiculous. And again, the people that throw these things out, you just kind of want to smack them upside the head and say, "Go back to school and learn how learn how things work." But then, unfortunately, these are people that we are electing to go to Congress. Unfortunately, and. Well, and a lot of these country. people, they're, they're not actually paid. They don't have a salary. Many of them are very, it's very small yeah. considered to their, in proportion to their wealth. So right. when they look at, you look at the big picture, they're getting paid in stock a lot of times. Yeah. And, and, and we did that. Uh, actually, Bill Clinton did that yeah. back in the late nineties when he put a cap on CEO salaries at a million dollars and Wall Street very effectively came out and said, that's fine. Great. We'll get another pay way. you out in stock. Yeah. Right. And that's why we now have surging stock buybacks. Because who's the people that sell back stock? It's insiders. It's not retail investors selling stock back to the company. It's the insiders selling their 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 stock that they've been granted back to the company and turning that into into wealth. Well, but not only that, they they're also issuing bonds. So think about who this serves. It serves management. Mm -hmm. Because look, many of them, there's a handful that have been around for a long time. But look at the tenure of most of these guys. They know the writings on the wall, especially middle middle to upper management. You know, yeah. a handful of CEOs been there forever, but these guys, they know, look, hey, we'll issue debt, especially when interest rates at all-time lows. Yep. Turn around, go buy back bonds. Who does that benefit? Buy back stock. Shareholders. Yep. And, no, it doesn't. No, 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 it doesn't benefit shareholders. And this is the big well, myth. Well, long-term, though, right? No, no, it doesn't. No? Okay. Let me ask you a question. Uh, you own stock in anything? Yeah. Okay, what do you own? Pick a company you own stock in. Apple. You own a stock in Apple. Okay, great. So Apple says today, I'm going to buy back $500 billion worth of stock, which is what they bought back so far. Right, so they're over here. They're buying back stock. Did you sell your shares of Apple? No. Okay. So how did you benefit from the buyback of those shares? Well, it's typically going to elevate the price. Is more, uh, more demand this, that hasn't worked this year. Well, not this year, but have they done as many buybacks this year? The, yeah, actually, they have. Mm. <laughs> we have a record number of stock buybacks issued this year. We have a trillion dollars worth of buyback announcements this year. 
So well, I think you've had the announcements. I don't think you've had the number of buybacks that you historically have. Well, no, but we'll we'll have we're having more. They're coming in. Okay. So, but the point here's the point is is that see any day of the week this is the fallacy of stock buybacks. Yeah. Any day of the week, you can go out and sell your shares in the open market. Okay. You never sell your shares back to Apple. Apple doesn't ever call Danny Ratliff and say, Danny, we want to buy your shares back. Right? Correct. So the theory is, is that if the company's buying back stock, the price goes up. So that benefits you. But that's not a return of capital to shareholders, which is what that is termed as. Right? Companies buying back shares, you're getting a return of capital from the company. You're not. And you can execute that trade every single day. Now, if the company issues a dividend... That's a return you of capital. Get, that's a return yeah. of capital. And yes, you get that as a shareholder. Correct. So the only people that benefit really, truly on the inside of stock buybacks, and this is why they were illegal until 1980, okay. is because it's a form of stock market manipulation. And the SEC had, had, had outlawed these post the Depression because they manipulate the stock price. But the only people that now benefit from those really are the insiders of companies that are selling their shares back because that's who the company actually buys the shares back from. Correct, but you can benefit from it if it's going to it's going to prop the price up. You could turn around and liquidate, right? But, but yeah, but you're still not selling to the company. It doesn't matter who you're selling to. But I don't care the, who the, I sell to. If it's you, if it's Brent, <laughs> if it's you know. Okay, but let me ask you a question. Let's say a company has no stock buybacks, and okay. the market is rising. Is the stock price going to rise with the market? It should. Okay. So, what was the benefit? Did did Apple stock price rise this year because they were doing stock buybacks when everything else was falling? The answer is no. Yeah. The majority of the stock price appreciation follows the market, not stock buybacks. Right. The only thing that really stock buybacks you know provide is is a boost to earnings per share by reducing the number of shares outstanding, which theoretically helps them beat you know beat their earnings estimates and the stock goes up. Right. Correct. So, but it is a form of manipulation, which historically there you go. Nah. But nah, no, no, nah. I was never arguing with that. <laughs> At the end of the day. Are, are the markets better or prices better because of stock buybacks? Yeah, 40% more. Yeah. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so you just made my point. No, no. I'm not saying that the stock buybacks don't lift prices, but it's not a return of capital no, to shareholders. Yeah, but look, I don't care where it comes from. If it goes up, it goes up. I mean, that's what I'm getting at. All right, but this was this this was not the whole debate this morning. I didn't need a dissertation on this. No, I just needed. I just wanted to get to the whole point about the windfall profits tax, which is another stupid idea. Yeah, oh, that's it is coming out of Washington. Well, I mean, <laughs> we're talking about you know trying to make inflation better, right? Yep. yep. But we're going to tax tax companies already that are, have been under pressure historically. And where were they during the pandemic when these guys weren't making any money, right? Right. Where, where's their windfall profits loss, right? Yeah. Or windfall loss tax, right? Yeah, there's no Tax rebate. Yeah, no, this is the whole problem, which is, again, you know, short-sighted views. You know, what, 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 what's the problem? Why do we have high oil prices, right? The, the, one of the reasons we have high oil prices is not really lack of production. That's, I mean, we were a, a record net exporter of oil two years ago. So we have the potential to produce oil. So that's not really our problem. Our problem is refinery capacity, right? We are at, at maximum refinery capacity. So if we want cheaper gas prices. You need more refineries. That's what this really comes down to. Problem is, is if I'm going to invest money into a refinery, it takes 10 years to start getting a recoup on that investment because they're very expensive to build. And with an environment that's very hostile to energy companies, right? We all want to put you out of business uh, because you're evil oil companies and, and you're polluting the climate. Why would I go invest that kind of capital to build a refinery, plus the fact that I can't even build a refinery you know, somewhere like in California because of the environmental regulations? 
why you know uh, that just can't get done and so now you want to you want me to come help what you know president biden just uh, recently said that you know if if oil companies don't start bringing down the price of gasoline then which they have no control over by the way um then he's going to start you know going after energy companies so again here's another attack on energy companies so now let's tax them on their windfall profits which is going to even further impede them to produce more <laughs> oil right so you know these are all these kind of backward ideas that come out of government that have the exact opposite effect of what you want the outcome to be if you want oil companies to drill more stop going after them and attacking them say look you know we're going to open up leases go drill go we need more oil please go drill we'll give you tax credits if you'll go drill we'll give you some write-offs if you'll go drill get that production back up um, you know, you make them temporary, whatever it is, but give them an incentive to go out and drill and then remove the long term, you know, attack on these companies and then allow them to go do their job. Because, look, this isn't going to get better, as we talked about yesterday. The problem is, is that all this environmental, you know, ESG and climate change, new energy, clean energy environment requires a lot of petroleum inputs. Uh, to build them, you know, the carbon footprint for for an electric vehicle is about three times as large as a, as a regular ICE vehicle. So, it just requires a lot of plastic and petroleum and everything else to go in and build these cars, that and and windmills and solar panels and all this type of stuff. So, it, it's fine to go after these energy companies, but you're long term, you're making things more expensive for everybody because you're restricting the growth in petroleum production, which is what you need. And it's not just about oil and gas. It's about everything that you use, eat, touch, transport, et cetera, that all involves petroleum in some shape, form, or manner. So go ahead. No, no. I'm sure you want to throw something out there. Not after this last one. <laughs> no. Hey, and FYI, uh-huh. stock buybacks are down 22% for the year. So far. But the window just opened back up, and you have a trillion dollars of authorization by the end of the year. So twenty-two percent billion a from day. the quarter, from third quarter, five billion a day coming. All right, let's see it. We'll see. No, no. Look, I mean, it's not surprising stock buybacks are yeah. back down this year because markets are down, right? Yeah, it makes sense now, right? Companies are companies are the worst. They're the same as individual investors. They buy at the top, and then they don't buy at the bottom. So well, hopefully they're buying now. <laughs> we certainly need it. All right. Quick break. We'll come back. Wrap up the show with Danny Ratliff. Don't go away. news you can use delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com the end of the year is fast approaching what will the new year bring join richard rosso danny ratliff and lance roberts for our year-end economic review special event tuesday november 15th how to address higher taxes in the new year should you delay your retirement in 2023 what will the midterm elections mean for markets register now at realinvestmentadvice.com for our year-end economic review special event with Ratliff, Rosso, and Roberts. RealInvestmentAdvice.com. The Real Investment Show.
Welcome back to the show this morning. Dividends. It's always kind of an interesting uh, topic to talk about because it's not exactly what people think it is typically. Um, as a good example, Devon Energy today reporting very good earnings and cutting their dividend um, from $1.65 to $1.55. Now, that's not surprising because Devon Energy pays a near 6% dividend yield. So they're well above the 4% treasury rate. So again, earnings, you know, dividends should basically track your treasury yields to some degree. Um, so again, you, you've got a real outsized dividend for Devon, but that cut is. You know, not so that cut's not surprising. Um, but you know, one of the things that people typically get trapped into is is you know, there's a lot of media commentary is that during you know bear markets and those type of things, invest in dividend stocks. And you know, a lot of people will say, well, I own XYZ company for the dividend. I like the dividend, so I own the company, right? And and that's. You know, and particularly during the, the market rise, right? I own this company because of the dividend. That's a real common statement. The problem is, is that in a, in a bear market and particularly in a recession, which we're not in yet, dividends get cut because companies begin to rework their, their balance sheet, so to speak, in order to offset a slower economic environment. So if stock prices are falling and things are getting tough, the first thing they do is they come in and start cutting dividends. Now, just three years ago, we were talking about this in relation to oil companies because, you know, oil prices were down and, you know, revenues were declining and, and stock prices were down. And we saw a lot of oil companies cut their dividend because, you know, they were trying to, you know, stabilize their their stock prices and stabilize the revenue losses. Now, today, you know, record stock prices, dividends, and are, are all great. But at the time, a lot of people that were owning these stocks that were down, they were also down and losing their dividend. And this is one of the things that happens to a lot of people is like, I don't care if the stock price falls by 50% because I'm getting this great dividend. Oh, you but you do. That's the problem. Right. Because everybody says that. I mean, I can't tell you how many people we, we get calls a lot. And yeah. hey, look, I need to build a dividend portfolio. I need I need companies that have never cut their dividend. Well, first of all, that's very few. Right. And and second of all, and if it is, the dividend wasn't a whole lot to begin with. Right. Right. Um, can you live off that dividend? Is the number one question. Right. Can you physically live off that dividend? And can you wait for those assets to to come back? Because that's the problem is that these articles are great. And I'm seeing them all over the place as well. Right. So I get it. I mean, it's it's on top of everybody's mind. Everybody's looking for the next best thing. And and how can you invest you know, smart right now? Mm. And I think that's the problem is that I'm not sure you can in this environment and expect not to see a huge decline. Right. Well, A, the stock price will or go down. Decline. Right. Well, the stock price will go down with the market. Now, dividend stocks typically don't fall as much as non-dividend paying stocks, right? So from a... From a relative perspective, right, I buy dividend stocks and they don't go down as much as the markets. The market goes down 50, you're down 35. Problem is, is that you're going to be wanting to sell your dividend stocks at that point anyway. But here's the other problem. So even if you hang in on this idea that I'm, I love this company and it's down 50% and I'm not going to sell it because I love this company and it pays a great dividend, the problem comes when they cut their dividend. And a lot of times during a recession, the average dividend is cut by almost 50%. And if that's average, that means a lot of them are getting cut out completely. And we've seen this in, in both previous, you know, the dot-com crash, great financial crisis. Those dividends get slashed or cut entirely, and they get cut and slashed 
when you're down 50%. So now you're down 50% in your portfolio and you lose all your dividends. Well, and your income, right? And that's the problem. That that is a big problem. So now I can play devil's advocate on this as well. Look, we like dividend-paying stocks. We own dividend-paying stocks. Um, We do feel like there's going to be a lot of upside in the the future. And the companies that we own, we feel pretty confident about. However, the problem is that people take this, and they don't take it part and parcel. They take it and say, we're throwing everything in here, Lance. Right. And then they go and buy Then they go search for the highest dividend-yielding stocks and buy those stocks because they have the highest dividend yield. But companies with the highest dividend yield also represent the companies with the most risk of, of, well, that's of right. cut. Well, that's right. Well, not only that, but they have also, they're trying to entice you to invest. So sometimes they're not always the most sound companies either. Well, that, that's what I mean. And right. Yeah. So why do companies, so a company pays, so ExxonMobil, I'm just picking this, let's say, let's not even use a company. ABC company pays a dollar in dividend and yeah. the stock trades at $100 a share. Okay. Make it easier. Stock trades at $10 a share. Pays dollars worth of dividend ten and trades at $10 a share, right? So it's a 10% dividend yield, right? So I'm going to go buy that company. Stock falls to $5. The stock now has a $20 dividend, a 20% dividend, right? Because of the price decline. So when you're out going and buying stocks with high dividend yields, that's the high dividend yield is a function of the falling stock price. So in a lot of cases, to Danny's point, we go out and we chase the stocks with the highest dividend yields. Like, wow, if I get this stock at this price, I'm getting all this dividend yield. The problem is, is a lot of times that's a reflection of falling stock prices. And uh, you know, one thing you want to look at if you're buying a dividend yielding stock like ExxonMobil or you know Devon or whatever, look at what they actually pay out in dollars per year because you don't get yield. You don't get the dividend yield. You get the dollars that they pay out in cash every year in terms of the form of a dividend. So, in other words, if I can buy, well, here, let's just take a real-life example. Um, well, and a good example, this would be probably the, the 2010s, mm-hmm. and everybody was dumping everything into MLPs. So, like, you remember, like, Sands Permian, and there was a handful of others that had these awesome dividends. And I would see people put their whole retirement, their whole portfolios into something like this, and then the stock would just, would just nosedive, yep. or these MLPs would, but they're stuck holding them. Yep. And so... And then even in that, I mean, we can get into, you know, how do you hold those? Do you hold them in retirement funds or not? I mean, that's a whole other dilemma, but uh, or debate here. But right. I, what you're saying is absolutely right. Right. No, I mean, that's what I'm saying. It's like, you know, ExxonMobil pays three fifty two in dividend every. So if I own 100 shares of ExxonMobil, I get $3.52 for every share I own every year. Apple pays $0.92 cents on a dividend. So that's what I actually get. Right now, the yields are, are important. You know what the yield tells you is is what all the yield tells you is what the cash dividend payout is versus the current price. And so the one thing to look at is that when you go to buy things like, wow, this stock pays a ten percent dividend yield, sounds great, but if the price is falling 30, 40, 50 percent to get you that ten percent dividend yield, that's the thing you want to pay attention to, because if the stock price is under a lot of pressure, the risk is that they're going to cut the dividend. And that's what you need to be careful of. And that's the whole point of this conversation is that just because you buy a high dividend yield doesn't mean you're going to keep that dividend yield when the company's in financial trouble and having to cut their dividends to, to stabilize their operations. So just be careful with that. So I just, just for research purposes here, yep. just went to a couple of different financial websites. Everyone I'm on the front page has 20 best dividend stocks, five best dividend stocks. Yeah. Um, 10 best dividend stocks. And then look, and, and to Danny, to your point, look, we own a lot of dividend yielding stocks in our portfolio. 
You know? you know the funny thing, though? Yep. None of them are the same. Yeah, no, of course They're not. They're different on every one of them. <laughs> yeah. Well, it depends on what you're screening for and yeah. you know, what you're yeah, trying to do. But the point is, is look, uh, look we, we think, right, and as investors, as portfolio managers, we believe in buying companies that pay dividends because, A, it increases the total return of the portfolio because you don't have just capital appreciation, but you also have the dividend income. So dividends are a very important part of the portfolio. So we're not saying that at all. We're not saying discount that. We're not saying you shouldn't buy dividend-yielding stocks. You should. We like them. Exactly. But the things you need to be aware of is that, A, their stock prices will fall with the rest of the market, just like with share buybacks. It doesn't matter. The mar 80% of stocks are going to track the market up or down. That's just the way, the way markets work today. The second thing is, is that in a recession, dividends get cut. So just be aware of those two factors that just because you buy the stock and you love it and you love the dividend – doesn't mean you're going to keep it. So as the stock price begins to fall and you say, you know what, I'm losing a lot of capital here. That's the more important question than I love the stock. I'm going to hold it because I like the dividend yield. Because again, if you lose the dividend yield on top of 50% loss of your portfolio, you know, now you're in a really bad spot. And that happens a lot more often than you think. Yeah, and that, this is where, you know, we talk about diversification, and we're not big fans of modern portfolio theory in the sense that we need to be in large cap, mid cap, small cap, international, and, you know, we're going to either overweight or underweight them. If we don't like something, we'll remove it altogether. But this is, I think, a good lesson in understanding that don't put all your eggs in one basket in that aspect that, you know, you can't just chase one thing and one thing only, because that's typically when you get burned. I mean, if you right. look at the portfolio now, we're holding cash, we're holding you know, a lot of cash alternatives. We're still holding some fixed income. Not a lot, albeit, but still holding some. Um, you know, and, and the same for equities, which there's going to be a lot of opportunity. You know, that's where, yeah. you know, I mean, in our conversations that we have each morning in our investment committees, this is where I get excited because I'm really optimistic. We're going to find a lot of really good deals. Um, and having the cash to be able to act on that, I think that's key. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that's, yeah. that's the problem I think most people encounter, though, especially when looking at, at stories like this. They take it all. They put it all there. And then when things do actually, if they if they get worse, you can't act on it. Yeah. You can't take it, use it to your advantage. No, that's right. So um, any last minute thoughts here before we wrap up? You know, a lot of, lot of conversations around year-end planning. I think everybody needs to be mindful of, you know, getting, your, getting a pretty good idea of what your income taxes look like right now. We need to be looking at Roth conversions, need to start looking at planning for 2023 as far as what distribution planning looks like. Um, you know, lots of talk, talking to different CPAs of, you know, what does the tax code look like? Does it remain the same? Or I think it's going to be really hinged on what happens next week with midterm elections. So we're having a lot of conversations around that. And so I think if you want to make sure that you're getting your ducks in a row, so to speak, start looking at what that income looks like. Prepare for end of the year. Look at tax loss harvesting. We're going to talk a lot about that on Friday as far as what tips you can do and things to make sure you're prepared going into 2023. So you're going on a good note. There you go. All right. That wraps up the show for the day. Um, make sure and sign up for our, our economic review on November the 15th at noon. Again, so Zoom online meeting, get signed up for that today. We're going to answer all your questions, talk about next year, what to expect, and more. That's over the 15th. Get by the website. Our latest blog post from Michael Leibowitz is out talking about yields and markets. Uh, we'll talk about with Mike tomorrow, the FOMC decision today and what that means for stocks tomorrow. That's all coming up on the next editions of The Real Investment Show. Get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Everything you need to know right there. Ask questions and comments as well. Happy to help you. realinvestmentadvice.com. <laughs>